Well, welcome to The Bottom Line, another week of broadcast here on the uh, Bottom Line Show Network, which is also uh, heard at rogermarsh.com, thebottomlineshow.com. We've got video up at myhopenow.com. And I don't mind saying this because Tamara and I work pretty hard on this together. And our buddy Josh Myers at WDCX in Buffalo is kind of the video guru for all things My Hope Now. In addition to the weekly video that you see of yours truly, along with Bob Duco, John Rush, and Neil Boron, uh, that's posted at My Hope Now every week for the National Crawford Roundtable podcast, uh, we get select pieces of video throughout the course of the week and post it once or twice a week. And uh, I'm really happy to say that we're doing a lot of this. As a matter of fact, just to put this in perspective, you'll see clips from Bob Duco's show and Neil Boron Live and Rush to Reason with John Rush on KLZ in Denver. And then you'll see clips from the Bottom Line show. And, you know, it's it's interesting because Neil does a four-hour program that's two hours of talk and two hours of music every day. John's on the air. He does three hours live every day, and then the fourth hour is a rebroadcast of one of the earlier hours. Bob's on for four hours a day. The man's an animal. Bottom line shows on 90 minutes every day. We've got, you know, the reason, and people ask us all the time, why can't we have the bottom line show longer? I'll tell you, our flagship affiliate KBRT in Southern California is what they call a day timer. It's, uh, it's only allowed to broadcast by the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, only grants the broadcast license at full power from sunup to sundown. Now, you know that the sun is sometimes up much longer than that. And as the year goes on, like in the summer months, like right now, uh, KBRT is at full power till maybe 7 or 8 o'clock at night. But then it keeps dropping by 10 or 15 minutes to the point where by the time we hit November 1st, I think we lose full power at 4.45 in the afternoon or something like that. So um, the 3 to 4.30 time guarantees us that all 90 minutes of the bottom line show will be on full power on our flagship affiliate KBRT. So that's the reason why the the program is the length that it is. And uh, trust me, if we could be on three or four hours a day, I would love that. But uh, uh, unless the Lord provides a way for Crawford Broadcasting to pick up another signal uh, in the Southern California area, that's why we do what we do. So just thought you'd like to know that. But uh, I'm pleased to say that we have more video up at myhopenow.com than any of the other guys do. (laughs) And when you, so you know we're doing a lot of video when you consider the program length of this show is half of John Rush's and uh, less than half of Bob and Neil's. So anyway, not saying that we're bragging, but as the uh, noted theologian Dizzy Dean once famously said, bragging ain't bragging if you got the facts to back it up. So we got the facts, and that's the way it is. Hey, you know, speaking of facts, I'd love to take a look at some statistics here uh, with regard to things that are common misconceptions in the world. Um, over the course of time, for example, we'll get stuck on a number and then that number will change. And the question we have to ask ourselves then is, are we going to change or not? About 15 years ago, I was part of a, a youth and family ministry and the uh, the said speaker of said ministry had been uh, a real champion for helping parents uh, get connected with uh, the dangers of drug use and abuse among kids and sex and sexuality and that type of stuff. And so uh, the ministry kind of had a reputation as being the go-to source. They had published a book in the mid-80s about uh, drug and alcohol abuse among kids of all walks of life, but then also kids in the church. And then about 10 years later, they did another update on it. Well, 10 years after that, I'm working with them, and they had a chance to update this book and put a new title on it and whatever. And so I was brought in to uh, do some of the writing. And so I did. I wound up writing three or four new chapters for the book, 
we took a look at some things that weren't prevalent uh, in the mid-80s, that were prevalent in the mid-2000s. Um, as a matter of fact, we actually uh, uh, hit me up, and I'll see about getting you a copy. The, this whole trend that we see in the culture right now of uh, the hard liquor drinks getting kind of watered down. And remember wine coolers back in the day? Uh, Bartles and James and all those companies. Were still, a lot of people had taken to the kind of sangria model of drinking sparkling wine with, or wine with a sparkling beverage, kind of watering down the alcoholic impact. Well, then when the millennials were coming of age, they were in high school or whatever, the idea was to make alcohol more appealing to them as well. And so it became very common for these hard liquor companies, Seagram's and whatnot, to create these beverages that did have vodka or rum or whatever it was in them, but they were already kind of pre-mixed drinks. And so they were marketed to young people as, hey, this is cool, little alcohol, but it's, it's not really, a, it's more like a, a soda or light drinks. As a matter of fact, the product category was called Alka Pop, like alcohol and soda pop put together. And, you know, I could have told you 15, 20 years ago that what we're seeing right now where darn near every millennial in Generation Z, Christian or not, is drinking White Claw and all these other things. It's, ah, it's got a low alcohol content. It's not that big a deal. But the reality is, when you look at the painkillers that kids are using, the fentanyl addictions, the what happened over the past couple of years with more alcohol abuse and use, the fact that they have been so conditioned to drink alcohol on a regular basis, the same way they were conditioned to drink coffee when Starbucks went all crazy like that, it really isn't any surprise that people are having problems with this. And yet, I, I can't not point this out. At the same time that we're experiencing that, there are a lot of people who still think that there are some problems in the world that are really getting a lot better. So you've got problems like alcohol use and abuse that's getting far worse, but because it's been so mainstream, people don't think it's a problem. And then there are issues like world poverty, for example, and what might be considered to be extreme poverty that really is not as big a problem as it used to be. I mean, anybody living in extreme poverty is still going to be a problem. There's no question about that. But I came across some statistics not too long ago that I wanted to share because I think it's a good idea. It's a good uh, baseline for us to understand how bad the situation has been and how much better the situation has become. When you take a look at the number of people who live in extreme poverty worldwide, it's a startling statistic. Take into consideration the number of people, say in 1990, who are living in extreme po poverty. Now, let's get a little, uh, what was that? I, that's not where I wanted to go. My, my computer's doing crazy things. Please pardon the interruption while I search. There we go. I'm just going to Google this world population in 1990. And the world population in 1990 was 5.28 billion. Let's call it 5.3. Now, the uh, world population is about to hit 8 billion, uh, possibly even sometime this year. And interestingly enough, not only is it amazing to see the world population get that big, but India is about to overtake China as the most populous nation in the world. Isn't that something? Okay. In 1990, the number of people living in extreme poverty was staggering. Now, extreme poverty internationally is recognized as people who live on less than $1.90 a day. So let's say two bucks, just to make it easier. Okay. 
Now, that is a measurement that is adjusted for price changes over time and for price differences between countries. Um, for example, uh, from 2015 to 2030, we can kind of estimate based on where the trajectory has been from 1990 to 2015. And that's based on different currencies, different countries, different governments. You know, Brexit came into the whole thing. There's a, a big deal. In 1990, the world population was 5.3 billion, and the number of people on planet Earth who lived in extreme poverty was 1.9 billion. Now, what makes that number so staggering is that 1.4 billion of those people either lived in South Asia or East Asia and just the Pacific overall. The number of people, 1.4 billion people. The other 500 million or so were living in Sub-Saharan Africa. For the next 20 years, that number was on the decline. It started at 1.9 billion. By the year 2000, it was around 1.6 or 7 billion. Then it dropped to 1.5. And then something happened over the next decade. Between 2005 and 2015, the number of people living in extreme poverty had fallen from 1.9 billion to 730 million. 2015, isn't that incredible? Over a 15, well, 25 year period, the number of people living in extreme poverty fell. But how many organizations did you hear from saying, hey, we're still out here fighting and helping and fighting and helping and helping and fighting and helping and fighting? Almost all of the growth happened in either South Asia or East Asia and the Pacific. Between 2015 and 2018, the number of people in extreme poverty fell from 730 million to 650 million. Where it stands right now is it's somewhere just over 500 million, and the estimate is that by the year 2030, there will be 479 million people living in extreme poverty, and the world population will be well over 8 billion. It could be 9 billion at that point. But what's happening now is that, well, economic production is growing. People over the last generation are moving out of extreme destitute poverty. Why is this? Well, there's increasing productivity around the world. A lot of people facing the worst level of poverty ever are experiencing more growth. In other words, it's either because of micro lending from nonprofit organizations or, dare I say it, how many times have you heard that term? Well, you know, these people are working for slave wages over in this country or that country, but maybe those wages aren't slave to them. Maybe they're more than $1.90 a day. As a matter of fact, check this out. The world population, it used to be back in 25, 30 years ago, the, about a third of the world population lived on less than $1.90 a day. I remember within 10 years of that statistic, it had gone up to around $3 a day. Just a decade ago, a quarter of the world's population lived on $10 a day. Now it's a third of the world's population. The number of people who live on more than $10 per day has increased by 900 million people in just the last 10 years. Now, I know you might look at the money you have in your pocket and say, well, 10 bucks, I couldn't live on 10 bucks. Well, we're not asking you to. But take into consideration the extreme poverty. Basically, by 2030, the analysts 
who cover this statistic are suggesting that extreme poverty in South Asia and East Asia and the Pacific will be completely eliminated. Isn't that incredible? It was the noted theologian and statesman Bono who very famously said, remember he had the one program, he wanted to have governments cancel third world debt and all sorts of freebies for people. Even he had to acknowledge that what has come into play right now is that productivity. In other words, he said, I found that the best cure for poverty is a job. That's a great statistic to know. But what about other statistics that maybe we didn't know? Like, did you know in the 1980s we eliminated teen promiscuity in the church by having True Love Waits events and silver ring things and purity rings and uh, you know, take your, uh, the purity promise and all sorts of things that we did most every Christian ministry had some kind of sexual purity program that we ran. And that was supposed to eliminate teen pregnancy and teen sexuality. Now, the good news is if you look at abortion statistics over the years, fewer kids are getting, fewer girls are having abortions because fewer girls are getting pregnant because fewer teens are having sex. That's good news. But why? Most of them are afraid of either getting pregnant or afraid of spreading a sexually transmitted disease. It has nothing to do with the fact that a dad took his daughter away for the weekend, they went shopping, he bought her a purity ring, and she promised to keep her purity, love, and devotion because of her dad, or because of her mom, or because of the event they went to, or because the pledge card they signed. So unfortunately now, while world poverty is moving in the right direction, down, Trust in the church when it comes to issues like sex and sexuality has also plummeted as well. Is there anything we can do to reverse the course? Pastor Dean and Sarah has a great resource to help us do that. The book is called Pure. Why the Bible's plan for sexuality isn't outdated, irrelevant, or oppressive. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Dean joins me to discuss this issue. Coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. By investing in the Wilson Financial Services 4D or four-dimensional account, your investment is guaranteed against loss. It provides long-term care benefits, permanent income benefits, and inflation benefits all at the same time. You know, I had a client come in this morning, and the first thing he asked me was, tell me about 4D money. I said, you've got an account right now that's one-dimensional. It's paying you 6% for the next three years, and that's the one dimension it has. I said, 4D money has four dimensions. It'll pay you 4 to 6% a year, but has three additional dimensions. Number one, it'll provide you with long-term care benefits. Number two, it'll provide you with permanent income benefits. And number three, it'll provide you with inflation benefits, all under the heading of 4D money. So when I explain these things to people, they say, well, you know, that sounds too good to be true. I said, I know, but we have got millions and millions of dollars of clients' money in these accounts, and it's in black and white. It's true. Ask Dennis Wilson and his team at Wilson Financial Services to explain the four dimensions of their 4D account. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970 for simply better alternatives. Well, a special guest joining me today here on The Bottom Line. I say that a lot with interviews, but I mean, Dean and Sarah is a special guest in the sense that he has a passion for uh, speaking the truth in love, doing so in a biblical fashion, but not backing away from the uh, the tougher subjects that uh, we in the body of Christ have a tendency to shy away from. He's a graduate of Liberty University, has a master's of arts degree in theological studies from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, currently working on his demon and studies, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. He's also the founding pastor of City Church. We're going to talk about a brand new book of his called Simply Pure. Uh, pure is the title, not simply pure. Why the Bible's plan for sexuality isn't outdated, irrelevant, or oppressive. 
sounds like a pretty tall order. We got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Pastor Dean and Sarah, welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Talk about just the things that are really concerning well, yeah. Paul and Jesus. What led you to wander in these waters? Because let's be honest, there are certain parts of scripture that a lot of pastors say, you know what, I'm going to leave that for some experts like Revelation. We don't talk about that here. You know, we, we get a video series or even the creation evolution debate. But when it comes to sex and sexuality and gender identity and things of that nature, we do hear your subtitle all the time. Well, you're a Christian. That must mean you believe in the Bible and your plan for life in terms of sexuality is so outdated. It doesn't really relate anymore. It's so oppressive. What was there a, an aha moment for you, Dean, that led you to say, I really need to sort these things out. Yeah, I think it was seeing so much confusion or outright avoidance, kind of one of those mm. two camps. Yeah. Uh, I guess a third camp would be denying altogether, just abandoning <laughs> God's design. And, yeah. and I believe that as I read the scriptures, that God's design is as clear for, for marriage and sexuality in the scriptures as really any other truth we hold to. I mean, it is just as clear as, as, you know, Jesus walking on water, and it's just as clear as the Red Sea being parted. I mean, it's as clear as possibly can be. So I think if we're going to be faithful disciples, we have to make sure that we're clear on what God has said in, in a world that's confused and a world that is, is running away from this. So I just want to make sure that there's a, a book written, and I'm not a, I didn't read it, write it from a scholarly perspective. I wrote it from a, hey, let's talk about this as just normal, everyday people about what's going on in the culture and what God says about these things in the scriptures. And, and that's what I felt compelled to do. Well, I'm glad you did, because quite frankly, there are a lot of people. I worked in youth ministry for a number of years. I know a lot of our listeners have children who grew up in, oh, actually, it's kind of nice now, Dean. We have a lot of adults and their adult children who listen to the Bottom Line Show, which is kind of cool. But they, rem- but they remember what it was like to go to the silver ring thing or the true love waits thing yeah. or there were all those you know sign the pledge card the passion pledge whatever it was and you know it's so interesting now how many more people are coming out and saying hey i did that but i was still sexually active and i still you know i, I just kind of wandered away from the church because the purity culture i guess you can call it was really just kind of overly oppressive talk about how you address that in the book pure the fact that i mean you don't back away from it but you acknowledge you know that there was some good intentions behind that, but there were also some, you know, missteps as well. Yeah, I grew up right in the heart of it. I mean, I was a teenager right in the middle of the True Love Waits movement. And I'm thankful for any Christian organization or movement that's going to try to point people towards towards God's design. I, I So I do believe the motives were right. I just wish they actually would have taken that angle of making it about God's design. Mm. See, so much of the conversation was all in the context of you saving yourself for your future mate. So you're telling a 16-year-old and making the whole motivation your spouse. That's just like, when I'm 16, that's the furthest thing from my mind. Right. But as a 16-year-old who's trying to follow Jesus, God's design should definitely be on my mind. Uh, so I think what happened was that it made it into something that was either going to result in creating little Pharisees or creating a lot of people who were going to walk around in guilt and shame. Because hmm. the messaging was, Dean, you don't want to be the one on your honeymoon who didn't wait Right. If you really right. love your future spouse, you're going to wait. True love waits. So they created this kind of also this kind of weird utopia of a honeymoon. Uh, but at the same time, you set people up for failure. Uh, because if you messed up, and by messed up, I mean like you engage in sexual sin uh, before you were married, the way the messaging was came across, I don't think it was meant to be this, I want to be fair. But the way it came across was, well, I already messed up. Right. So, so it doesn't matter now. You can tell me I'm forgiven and all those kind of things, and I guess I believe that, but I'm just going to keep doing what I want to do and, and as long in, in these dating relationships, whatever it might be, because I've already messed up. Why does it matter now? And then the other side was more of a little Pharisees that were created of, hey, I'm the one who kept the rules. 
since you didn't keep the rules, you're not marriage material or you right. know, I, I can't be with someone like you. And neither one of those, the guilt and the shame or the little Pharisees or the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, so I, I wish the motivation would have been and it would have been a true teaching of here's what God says. And here's why it matters for his glory and for our good, that God has created sex, not for in love people or ready people or mature people, but for married people. Okay. And here's how he defines marriage, you know, man and a woman in a lifelong covenant. And, and, and I wish that would have been the messaging more than, hey, don't you be the one. Yeah, and that's really what came across to our generation. Pastor Dean and Sarah, my guests today here on The Bottom Line. The book is called Pure. We've got a link for it up at thebottomlineshow.com. Why the Bible's plan for sexuality isn't outdated, irrelevant, or oppressive. And I mentioned that link, and we'll be giving away a copy at the end of our conversation today. You know, I, I'm glad you said what you said, because I think it didn't just fit on a bumper sticker, right? You know, I mean, true love waits, sells, right? That, that's, a, that's a branding stick campaign. I kissed dating goodbye, sold a million copies by a guy who really didn't know what he was doing. And now, from what I understand, has left the church, left his wife, and is living with a man. I mean, it's, it's it really, we were looking to people who didn't necessarily have the goods on this and really didn't have an answer for the fact that to the world, the world doesn't care about biblical values. The world doesn't care about our morals and ethics and this, that, and the other thing. The world says, sex feels good. I want to have sex. And we in the church really didn't have an answer to the question that was needed, which was, what do you say to someone who says it's just sex? I mean, I, talk about uh, how we in the body of Christ need to have better answers for the questions the world asking in this regard. Yeah, I, I think we need to really tell the story of the scriptures uh, that we see God's design for marriage and sexuality. That it's not just these little isolated pieces; it plays out to the storyline of the Bible. Uh, right. When Jesus was asked about marriage, he referenced creation. He referenced Genesis as historic, and that was his basis for what he thought about that. We see the one flesh union of man and woman. Now, that is more than sex, but it's definitely not less. Yeah. And then we get to 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul's confronting the, the, the church there about their sexual sin, specifically engaging in temple prostitution. He didn't give them a lecture about prostitution. Right. Instead, he pointed them to Genesis and says, don't you know that when you lie with that person, that you are becoming one flesh with them. Like you're doing these permanent things with temporary people. It's never just sex. And here's what I believe. I believe that the world deep down inside knows it's never just sex. Right. right. That's why if someone finds out their spouse committed adultery, why it's so catastrophic. If it was just sex, why is it that big of a deal? Oh, I messed up. We'll get, you know, we'll, we'll try to be, have a better marriage. Uh, it's something super serious like sexual abuse. Why does that cause so much pain? Right, right. Even yes. more pain than any, all abuse is wrong. But sexual abuse is like its own separate category, right? Of pain and trauma. Why is that? Because we know. You know, we, we know. And because when we take things out of God's design, it's going to bring brokenness. It's going to bring pain. We get to Ephesians 5. Paul's addressing the church on marriage, and he's also talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, where almost, you're almost getting confused for a minute on which one he's talking about. Am mm -hmm. I talking about the gospel or am I talking yeah. about Jesus? The answer is yes, he's talking about both, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. God has chosen to use the union of a man and a woman as husband and wife to point us to the invisible union of Christ in the church. Amen. So it's so much bigger. Yeah. It's so much better than anything our minds can comprehend. So I, I think we have to make sure people we're not communicating that oh, sex is bad or uh, that God is anti-sex. No, He has created it for His glory and for our good. It is also in His love for us is to be expressed in this context He's given us. So let's yeah. tell the whole story of the Bible. Let's tell the whole story of how it plays out to the scriptures. I love that that holistic approach, Dean and Sarah, simply because we're living in a world right now, not only is it sex crazed, you know, and there are many lies about sex, 
that the world believes the church is kind of buying into it. I want to talk about those with you a little further on the other side of this break. But as the world has lost its, its ability to discern, to really have true insight, to have critical cog conversations, cognitive dissonance about certain areas that, you know, sex is not all bad, but it's not all good. You know, people have a hard time. Well, wait, I, I live in a black and white world. You know, it's fight or flight. You're either right or wrong. You're with me or you're not. And we begin to understand that we're losing the nuance of what God created. And yet what he created sex for, quite frankly, is very simple. It's not easy for the world to understand, but it's very simple in terms of the concept. Pastor Dean and Sarah, my guest today here on The Bottom Line, the book is called Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality is Not Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. We'll talk about some of these lies and also where do we go from here? What do you do if you've been broken by sexual sin or you feel like you have been and it doesn't seem like there's any way out? We'll talk about that with Pastor Dean and Sarah in just a moment. The Bottom Line continues. Real estate broker Brian Edgel is the smart choice when it comes to finding someone to list and sell your home. He will get you the top dollar for your home, ensuring the fair and timely sale of your most important asset. The most expensive part of selling your home is the commission you pay to your broker. With Brian Edgel, you pay only 2.9% total commission. Right now, there are more buyers than sellers on the market, which puts you at an advantage. Get the most money out of your property now while the market is in your favor. Brian negotiates with buyers for you using his experience as a broker, not an agent, to get you the highest price and the most advantageous terms possible. Make the smart choice. Sell your home with real estate broker Brian Edgel for only 2.9% total commission. Call Brian today at 800-969-3992. That's 800-969-3992. Or go to smartchoicehomeseller.com. Brian Edgel, DRE 01391126, NMLS 1599100. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh in a very sobering uh, first half of a conversation with pastor and author Dean and Sarah today talking about sex and sexuality, uh, how the True Love Waits movement may have actually set the church back a little bit in engaging the culture and the dialogue about sexual purity. But we can win our place back if we follow Scripture's plan for sex and sexuality the way it is, not the way we want it to be. The book is called Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and because you heard the first half of the conversation, uh, we've got a copy of the book to give away as well, and I encourage you to give Teresa a call right now. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. If you went to a True Love Waits event or if you had your kids go to something like this, I confess uh, the kids I was raising, M, Kaylee and Jake, when they went through all of this, we had many a dialogue about this issue. Not once did they ever go to something where they had to sign a pledge card or wear a ring. And, you know, I felt pretty bad about that. <laughs> I'm not that good dad, you know, whatever. But now as they're older and they've made really good decisions about that type of stuff, um, I breathe a healthy sigh of relief, but I also thank God that we kept it real in our home about that. I know that Lisa did with uh, the three that she was charged to raise as well. And uh, I, I know that there are a lot of parents who uh, feel that way as well. But for those who have been impacted by the purity pledge culture, uh, Dean and Sarah's book, Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive, is a great resource. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, I'll conclude this conversation talking about sexual purity coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Here at K-Bright, we are proud to recommend Stephanie and Jim Cover of Cover Law because they take such good care of their clients. 
I was coming home. It was like two days before Christmas. And I was sitting at the bottom of a hill and somebody just came smashing into me. Like they didn't even break or anything. They were coming down a steep hill. The people that hit me had no insurance, no license, no proof of anything. I had a lot going on in my life at the, at the time. I was busy at work. I was doing a lot of overtime. My husband came down with cancer. That was really a hard point in my life for my husband and I. She was by my side trying to help me through the accident and giving me personal support and telling me to keep the faith. And I was all ready like to, you know, throw in the towel. And she, she just kept me going. They're just hardworking people. They know their stuff. They're very educated. They make you feel comfortable. They stick with you all the way. I used them as attorneys. Now they're friends. And once in a while, I tease them. Do I need to get in trouble so I could retain you guys? <laughs> I'd do anything to help those guys. I highly recommend them. I mean, I haven't had need for an attorney before, and I fell into the right hands. In the event of an accident, call Cover Law right away, 877-214-4935. That's 877-214-4935. Pastor Dean and Sarah, my guest today here on The Bottom Line, Pure is the name of the book, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and as all the kids in the generation of the True Love Waits world uh, are coming to adult years now, and they're kind of looking at the world and saying, well, you know, the world says sex is expected, so we should just try to manage how we do it and not tell other people what to do. Um, we've got some really bad messaging going on in the church, Dean, and you mentioned this before the break about how we don't really address the real questions that the world is asking, and we don't always show the truth about what God's Word says about sex and sexuality. As you noted in our opening segment, sex is a gift from God to married couples, full stop. Anything outside of that is sin. So that makes it a little easier to kind of deal with. But the world kind of operates like, hey, five-year-old kids need to figure out their gender identity, and 10-year-old kids need to have access to condoms because, you know, well, you're going to have sex, right? You're going to be a sexual person. Talk about why that is such a huge lie that the world needs to hear the truth about. Yeah, I mean, the whole that, you know, five-year-olds need to discuss and, and figure out their gender identity. I mean, we have to be honest and not tiptoe so much to claim that that's just insane. You know, and, and, that, and that no reputable person really actually truly believes that. And we're letting this ideology out there just show almost like, almost for the sake of being progressive. Or just like ideology for the sake of ideology, yeah. I just fly against everything we know to be true. I mean, five-year-olds, they don't even care about boys and girls yet. And we're <laughs> trying to convince them that they're this certain way. And, and, and so I think that we need to, first of all, be unashamed of that we believe that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. And that, I think that, I'm not trying to oversimplify. I, I think we have to get back there to where we really are unashamed of what God has designed. And then we're not afraid to articulate it. We're not afraid to say, hey, this, you know this isn't true. And, and I, not to say it could be an argumentative, but we also point out the inconsistencies. Yes. I mean, I found it so fascinating that Father, I, just, I can't help but just chuckle a little bit. I don't mean to be mean-spirited, but that Father's Day is right smack in the middle of Pride Month. Right. Right. I mean, talk about something that just runs at odds with everything Pride Month is celebrating, where we know that there are, there are people called dads who are the men in our life that God has given us, and we're mm -hmm. going to celebrate them on this day. Uh, so I do think in the end that logic's going to win out here, you know, but, but also we have to realize that as brokenness happens from the beginning, apart from God's design for sexuality and gender, it's only going to break more and more and more. And as people are trying to come up with new ways to rebel, new solutions, it's only going to be further away. Uh, so I, I think that we have to make sure that in our homes, uh, not just only our, in our churches, in our homes, 
that we're being clear. If you think someone is, if you think your kid is, is, is you're starting to ask the question, uh, is my child old enough to have kind of the old fashioned birds and the bees talk? Uh, the answer might be you're a little too late. My dad used to always tell me when I first started learning to drive, uh, I would ask the question, should I turn my headphones on? Or my, excuse me, my headlights on, excuse mm-hmm. me. Should I turn my headlights on? And he would always say, if you have to ask, the answer is yes. <laughs> if you have to ask. <laughs> yep, yep. So, so that, I think that's true right now with the conversations we need to be having at our homes and our churches. If we have to ask, should we have this conversation? Uh, the answer is yes, because somebody's going to have it. Someone's going to have it with them. Yeah. Uh, so I just think we have to be unashamed first. And then the second thing is we have to be as clear as clear can be. Yeah, yeah. And it's I, like I, we have to be so clear. Clarity. I mean, we have to be clear with people on what the scriptures say and who they are, who God's made them to be. Yeah, and that's a great point, Dean, because uh, the, the fact that there are so many people who are having conversations and just kind of getting sucked into the, well, okay, people are going to have sex, and, and porn is out there, and I couldn't tell you what, porn, I'll tell you what, I have a five-year-old grandson. If I were walking through the shopping mall uh, back when I was his age and seeing the stuff that I'm seeing today, I, I'd be shocked. I mean, that, that was brown paper bag, red light district stuff. And now it's women's lingerie. You know, I mean, what the heck? And yet the idea, I think it's just kind of, it, it's very logical. It's very ungodly. The, the lies that the world believes you have seven of them in your book called pure. But one of the ones that really just jumped out at me too was, well, nobody has to know. So what's the big deal? And I'm thinking, well, every other lie is sex is expected. Well, if nobody has to know, why are you making a big deal out of that? You know, gay is okay. Well, nobody has to know. The idea that I should be able to tell you everything I'm doing, but it's my right to do it. We do this in privacy. How do we deal with that, uh, that uh, juxtaposition of uh, values, if you will? Yeah, well, I'm thinking of the Christian here. You know, I don't expect someone who's not a Christian to act like they are. Right. Right. Like I'm a Christian and struggle enough acting like I am. Right? <laughs> and I have the Holy Spirit in me yeah. as a believer. Uh, so the question, though, is to believers, do you claim to know Christ and, and to be someone who's been saved from your sins, reconciled to God, uh, that you believe in the gospel story of Jesus' death and resurrection? Uh, that, that, that changes things for us. You know, 2 Corinthians 5 says he died so that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and who rose again. Amen. So no, one can, no one's going to know if I do this, if it's pornography, if it's uh, you know, a, a sexual relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend no one knows about. Okay, fine. God knows. W- when did that not become a big I'm talking to myself right. here, too. When did right. that not become a big deal? And when we diminish the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, the, uh, the omnipresence of God, I mean, I mean that where, that's when our theology really matters and where we can think things like, oh, well, no one's going to know. It's okay. It's a secret. Well, okay, maybe you're the best. You can keep it to hidden whatever you're involved with sinfully forever. God knows. Mm-hmm. And that should be a huge deal to us. We have any fear of God at all and how inconsistent that is with claiming to be his children. We don't care about the fact that he knows already. So right. I would point people back to their theology. First, when that's their when that's their attitude is that no one's going to find out. And it's not a big deal. It doesn't hurt anybody, or you know, this is kind of the rhetoric of the world today. It doesn't hurt anybody. Why does it matter? Well, God knows, and and and, and that that should be a huge deal to us. Certainly should, Pastor Dean and Sarah, my guests today here on the Bottom Line. Pure: Why the Bible's plan for sexuality isn't outdated, irrelevant, or oppressive. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. We've got one to give away at the end of our conversation coming up here in a few minutes. The final segment of section of the book, Dean, you talk about where we as Christians, where we as in the body of Christ, where do we go from here? And one of the chapters has a very interesting, provocative, almost uh, really type of title, and that is God gives a quote unquote way out. Talk about that. If you will. Yeah. And I, I think one of the places where we go first is we realize that we're the ones that have the right answers here. 
Like we're the one that has God's design. Uh, you know, I, I heard a story one time about someone who uh, there was a, like a, a baseball tutoring meeting and they were interviewing a guy uh, about how to hit. And he was giving these hitting lessons while Stan Musial, the Cardinal Hall of Famer and baseball legend, is sitting in the crowd and nobody knew he was there. Oh my. And then someone finally said, why is it like the guy actually himself, with humility, finally noticed Musial was there. And he said, why am I talking about this from the guy who's the best hitter in the National League over the last generation that's sitting right in the crowd? Mm-hmm. And so Musial got up and started, and here, here's the thing, we're the ones that have the answers. We were the ones that have the keys and what, we're the ones that are, are following the Lord who made all of this. Let's let him be the one who guides the conversation as in going back to the scriptures, we have God's word. So I think we have to have a new confidence in that. That like we're not, we don't have to walk on eggshells. Like world's the one that's departed from this. It's not us. Mm-hmm. Now again, we might have departed our own sin and our own struggles, but in terms of the belief and the ideology and the rhetoric, it's the world that's departed. So we got to hold fast to that. And then from there, uh, I think we have to be willing to take these things seriously and, and to see uh, sexual sin as a very big hindrance to our relationship with God and our fellowship with Him. And in our conversations and in our communicating about this, it's not, what we see in the scriptures is not this overall, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Right. Instead, it's instructions to, hey, flee from sexual immorality. Now, I'm not giving you a list of rules. I'm saying run away from these things that are going to hurt you, right? Because when you lie with that person, you become one flesh with that person. Mm-hmm. And God cares about us. For one, most importantly, he cares about his own glory and his design. But he also loves us and he loves his children and doesn't want us to do temporary or do permanent things to temporary people. So let's make it about God's design in the conversation. God's not some prude when it comes to sex. He mm-hmm. created it, right? Exactly. God is pro-sex. As Christians, we should celebrate God's grand gift that he's given us, uh, but make sure that it's done in a way, again, that he has given us uh, through marriage. And for us to, have, to, to celebrate marriage and to thrive in marriage and flourish in marriage for God's glory and for our good. I think those are wise words from Pastor and author Dean and Sarah with regard to sexual purity with regard to marriage, the role that marriage should play in the culture, and especially in the church, and sex and sexuality. And there's some great research, great insights in this brand new book that I highly recommend. Dean and Sarah, the book is called Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality is Not Outdated, Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And in just a moment, we're going to be giving away a copy. But first, I want to thank Pastor Dean and Sarah for joining us today also for writing this book. And uh, you, you waded into some pretty uh, deep water here, my friend. And I think you came out uh, uh, not drowning, which is kind of And uh, really covered and helped us a lot. Thanks so much. I appreciate for your the encouragement. How it can be a, a helpful tool for our brothers and sisters. So thank Great. you. All right. Hey, we got it. Hey. Hey, well, what a great conversation. What a powerful resource. The book is called Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Repressive by my guest today, Pastor Dean and Sarah. Got a copy of the book to give away at 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800 the number to get you through to the bottom line. Of course, with the overturning of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey as part of the Supreme Court's Dobbs versus Jackson decision, the left is howling. Uh, the right is saying, yay, conservatives are saying, finally, no more federal mandate on abortion. The states can make their own decisions. But the left is losing its mind because they say this is denying women health care. Uh, women are going to die. Uh, it's going to be awful. And it's just uh, it's a terrible situation. Well, what do we make of that? I mean, is there any truth to that? Will the Dobbs decision actually keep women from having uh, 
proper medical care and, and does it put women's lives at risk? Uh, joining me for the next segment, Dr. Ingrid Skop, who's a senior fellow and director of medical affairs at the Charlotte Lozier Institute in Texas, a board certified OBGYN for 25 years, well, I'm nearly 30 now, and has delivered over 5,000 babies. She's written a powerful piece in thefederalist.com about what the statistics are, what the data says, and what the Dobbs decision really does mean in the abortion conversation. We're going to talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. There are a lot of women who are concerned right now, a lot of men who are concerned too about what Roe versus Wade means. And it it occurred to me as uh, the events of June 24th played out that there are a lot of people who really don't know what they're talking about. I don't know how else to describe it, but I mean, that's kind of seems what it seems like to me. You wrote a piece in the uh, the Federalist, which we'll put up at thebottomlineshow.com that kind of explained some of the realities of what is really going on with the passage of Roe versus Wade and how it isn't necessarily as damaging as a lot of people think. When you first heard the decision, we'll start with the basics. How did it make you feel knowing you've practiced this for so many years, knowing that for a lot of women, they think I'm pregnant, I don't wanna be pregnant and abortion's my only option. Well, I've been practicing for 30 years, but like almost all obstetricians, I do not perform elective abortions. Um, Less than about 10% of obstetricians will do that just because they're requested by a patient. Um, However, there have been many occasions where I have had to intervene in a pregnancy that has posed a risk to a woman's life. Mm -hmm. So I was excited when I heard of the Dobbs case because I think that... um, women are not well served by abortion in many cases. And I think it's a a good opportunity for our country to have a conversation about what is the best thing for women who find themselves in crisis? And even more importantly, how do we keep them from getting into that crisis in the first place? Mm -hmm. That's an excellent insight from uh, Dr. Ingrid Scope today. Scope here on Bottom Line Show. I'm going to correct myself at least three or four times. So I'm I'm asking for forgiveness in advance. Um, Let's talk about that that piece of misinformation. You mentioned as a board certified OBGYN, you've delivered thousands of babies. You also have had to intervene when there was a crisis per se, as we would define it, medical crisis where mom's life was at risk. Has that in your 30 years of practice, Dr. Scott, has that gotten more prevalent? Is it less of an issue? It seems to me that the advances in modern medical technology would mean that there would be fewer instances of something like that happening. Well, I would say yes and no. Um, One thing to be aware of is that women are uh, presenting with pregnancies that are more high risk than they used to be. Um, Mm. The increasing obesity in our our population, a lot of women are having babies at older ages than they used to. Uh, It's not unusual to have a 45-year-old mom, um, um, especially with our assisted reproductive technology, um, hypertension, diabetes, other pre-existing conditions. But the reality is there is a subspecialty of obstetrics that's called maternal fetal medicine whose goal is to help a high-risk woman and her baby make it safely through a pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So even though we're seeing more high-risk women, we also have the technology to care for them and care for their babies. And in almost every case, we can get them both safely through the pregnancy. Boy, that is so good to know. And I wonder how many women and how many uh, of those on the other side of the conversation who are saying, oh my gosh, there's no more Roe versus Wade. Women's health is going to suffer. Women's rights are going to suffer. We're sending us back to the Stone Age. I wonder how many people are taking into consideration the fact that you mentioned if there is the possibility that a woman might be in an at-risk pregnancy, it's not necessarily because just her and the baby are going along swimmingly and all of a sudden there's a problem. But 
mom may be bringing some of those problems to the pregnancy initially that uh, haven't been dealt with. Uh, Dr. Ingrid Skopp is my guest today here on The Bottom Line with the Charlotte Lozier Institute, a board-certified OBGYN. Uh, she wrote an op-ed right after the Dobbs versus Jackson case was uh, uh, handed down uh, titled, uh, No, the Dobbs decision does not put women's lives in danger. One of the things that you write about is the fact that there are a lot of people, I mean, I'm 60 years of age, Rover's way basically has been in my life, you know, ever since I was really paying attention to the news back on the 22nd of January, 1973. So many people have been led to believe, even people in the church, that abortion is a quote unquote life-saving solution. I mean, and, and they immediately go to the challenging pregnancies, this, that, and the other thing. But statistically, from what I've read, it seems like for many women, abortion is kind of an elective that says, I got pregnant. I didn't want to be pregnant. This will make me unpregnant. Um, how common is, is elective abortion versus the medical need abortion from what you've seen, Dr. Scott? Yeah, I mean, everybody worries about the need, but um, statistics tell us that is far less than 1% of all abortions. Mm. Even when we bring in babies that have life-threatening conditions themselves and incest and rape, we're still only talking about between 1% and 3%. Mm -hmm. So all the rest of the abortions that occur in our country are social or financially driven. And that's not to say that those women are not in crisis. They are, but we can do better than to say, we're going to solve your crisis by allowing you to kill your child. And that's right. essentially what we have done. And I think we're going to now have the opportunity to do a better job to show women we can care more holistically for them. Um, we should probably talk about the conditions where a woman really does need to be separated from her child. Um, the most common situation is called an ectopic pregnancy. Mm -hmm. yes. And interestingly, if you look at the laws, the the um, abortion restriction laws that are that are out there, either the ones that were prior to Roe that are being put back into place or the ones that have been um, legislated since then, they all allow an exception for a life-threatening condition. So mm. the, it, this is just pure myth to say that the law won't allow a doctor to intervene. In an ectopic pregnancy, which is usually in the fallopian tube, the pregnancy cannot make it to a live birth. It will right. inevitably miscarry, but in the process as it grows, it may break open the tube and it can cause catastrophic bleeding. And many women have died from ruptured ectopic pregnancies. It is a life-threatening condition. Mm -hmm. Any obstetrician, no matter how they feel about elective abortion will intervene as soon as they know of the condition. Right. We don't right. wait to see if the woman's gonna bleed. The intent is different. Um, intent of elective abortion is to end the life of the fetal. Intent of intervening in a life-threatening situation is to save the woman's life. And if possible, sometimes we can save the baby, not in the case of an ectopic, but in the case of life-threatening situations later in pregnancy, we often can. Even Planned Parenthood acknowledges that, uh, that treating an ectopic is not the same as an elective abortion. That's so interesting because one of the arguments that I've heard over and over again since uh, over the past couple of weeks is, well, ectopic pregnancy, and therefore you would just let them, you know, let this all happen. And yet what you said, Dr. Scott, I think it bears repeating with regard to the ectopic pregnancy, when you look at the ultimate end result of what is going to happen with the ectopic pregnancy, there's no way for a child in an ectopic pregnancy to survive, correct? 
That, that is correct. That right. is correct. So, it's an inevitable miscarriage. Yeah. And so it, it, it's going to happen. And miscarriages that do you know take place and they're unfortunate. And I, I, we all know people, two very close to me mm -hmm. uh, recently in the past year, um, actually three, now that I think about it. So I mean, that that is a part of the pregnancy process that doesn't always get talked about. And yet the idea that there are those who would use one little specific uh, element of this and say, therefore, this is why we need it on the whole. If I heard you correctly, Dr. Scott, and I want to make sure I got the math right, you cite that there's probably about 3% of abortions that happen for a medical reason that you could say, yeah, I could, it, no, there's no OBGYN in the world who would say, we're going to put the woman's life at risk as far as this goes, whether it be ectopic or other reasons. And the other 97%, you're saying there's a way that we can intervene medically. There's a way that we can help both mother and child. I've read some of the fascinating stories about uh, in utero surgeries and things like that that are happening and how kids who are born, you know, what we would call prematurely and are thriving, you know, after a, a little, you know, rounded NICU to make it through. But it seems like the medical community have really has advanced to the point where it has eliminated or almost completely eradicated that medical need, if you will, for a woman to have an abortion. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing what we can do. And like you say, the babies we can save at extremely young ages. Um, currently, 21 to 22 weeks gestation is where we can often wow. save a baby. And that's only halfway through a pregnancy. Right. Oh, my goodness. So, most of the time when a woman experiences a life-threatening event, it may be severe hypertension, mm -hmm. it may be extremely premature rupture of membranes where she's at risk for an infection, um, it could be bleeding from an abnormal placenta, or perhaps a woman who has like a pre-existing severe cardiac disease that gets worse as the pregnancy mm -hmm. progresses. Almost all of those happen beyond the point where the baby can be saved. So the solution is quite simple. The mother needs to be separated from her baby. Um, it's sad. I mean, it's it's not easy, but it's the, the solution is, is readily apparent for the obstetrician. But this can be done in an obstetrically standard way. We can mm -hmm. induce her labor. If we need to get the baby out quickly, we can do a C-section. And we can give the baby a chance at life. That is a that. much more caring way than to send a woman dismemberment abortion, which is the, the method that would be used at that point for an abortion, to be torn to pieces mm. in order to separate them. We can, we can deliver the baby. We can see if the baby can be saved, even if the baby's too young to be saved. The mother, we're showing respect to the mother, to the child, and to the family. They can yes. hold the family. They can grieve. They can hold the baby. They can grieve appropriately. We don't have to intentionally destroy the baby in order to the two. Boy, this is such great uh, content. It's wonderful information. And we're so grateful to have the conversation today with Dr. Ingrid Scott here on the bottom line. She's Senior Fellow and Director of Medical Affairs at the Charlotte Losher Institute, a board-certified OBGYN, 30 years practice, more than 5,000 babies delivered, explaining to us basically the P's and Q's, if you will, the ABC's of what is going into the abortion debate and what is the actual medical process? So now that when we have the conversation with maybe friends or relatives who are saying, oh, no, Roe versus Wade is over, that's the end of women's rights and women's health care, we could come in with a compassionate but measured argument as to why their concerns really are unfounded. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, 
Uh, Dr. Scott practices in Texas, and we all know about the Texas heartbeat bill. I want to find out what exactly that has done to advance the cause of life or if it's really having uh, that big of an impact on the abortion world in Texas. Coming up next as the bottom line continues. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Uh, Dr. Ingrid Skop is my guest as we're talking about the Dobbs decision. She's a uh, medical analyst with the Charlotte Lozier Institute. We've got a link for their website up at thebottomlineshow.com talking about why so many uh, leftists are saying women's lives are in danger because Roe versus Wade was overturned and that's not nearly the case. By the way, still taking your calls on Pastor Dean and Sarah's book on biblical sexuality. The book is called Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality is Not Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. Uh, 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. For our KCBC audience, enjoy the rest of your day and Rabbi Schneider, Discovering the Jewish Jesus, coming up on the other side of this break. For those who remain on the network, my continuing conversation with Dr. Ingrid Skop from the Charlotte Lozier Institute about why we can speak truth to power with regard to what the overturning of Roe versus Wade actually means versus what left-leaning cynics and uh, media analysts are saying. Quite frankly, if there's a big lie going on right now, it's about what the left is saying about the overturning of Roe. More of my conversation on the big truth with Dr. Ingrid Scott coming up next as the bottom line continues. Dr. Ingrid Skopp is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. She's a senior fellow and director of medical affairs at the Charlotte Lozier Institute and a board-certified OBGYN, uh, 30 years practice. Talk about the Charlotte Lozier Institute for just a moment, Dr. Scott. Uh, what they do, I mean, I've read a lot of the work there in terms of the sanctity of human life, and I've always appreciated uh, very fair and balanced and medically reasonable research that they put out. Well, thank you. We're, we're a little over a decade old. Um, we're actually a research arm of Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. Got it. And our, our, our solid goal is just to get education, to get real truth um, out in front of the American public. They've been gaslighted, un unfortunately, by the media that is overwhelmingly pro-abortion. Um, mm -hmm. Everything we do is well-referenced. If you look at any of our studies, you'll probably find 20, 30, maybe 40 references. Um, uh, our fact sheets and things like that. And we're also doing original research where we're, we're trying to do, recognizing that it's very hard to get data because in our country, um, everything about abortion is voluntary. Counting the number of abortions is voluntary. Um, reporting of complications is voluntary. And I think we all know intuitively that an abortion provider is not going to report their complications right. unless someone makes them do that. And abortion-related maternal mortality is also voluntary. And we have good reason to believe that very, very few abortion-related deaths are actually detected by the CDC. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's interesting. And it's funny you mentioned, or interesting you mentioned, uh, being in Texas and having the strong Texas heartbeat bill. But then you've got a place like California where literally I drove past a sign on my way into the studio today that said, welcome to California where abortion is legal. And we, it was almost like a tourist sign. I mean, the way they had spelled out the word abortion, there's a big lettering at the bottom. This is sponsored Planned Parenthood of the Southwest. And they're basically calling it in. And yet here in what we like to call the People's Republic of California, you'll never find abortion statistics here because why would they want to talk about how many uh, they're doing and how many are coming here? I mentioned the Texas Heartbeat Act. You mentioned this in your article, which we've got up at thebottomlineshow.com. I've heard good things about it. And at the same time, I've also heard from some folks in the medical community in Texas saying, hey, it's not as 
big a success as perhaps we hoped. Help us understand why the bill passing caused so much furor for the pro-abortion community, but what it's doing to their efforts to try to keep people getting abortions. Well, I think the furor came about in that Texas was the very first state that was ever able to enforce an abortion restriction. And we were able to do so because we have kind of a funny little uh, mechanism in place. The state does not enforce the law. The the, uh, civilians of the state do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people can argue pros and cons about that mechanism, but they had to do it that way because that was the only way that a judge would not enjoin the law because of Roe. Mm -hmm. But now we're in a new world after Dobbs. States can um, create their own abortion restrictions, which I'm anxious. I think what we're gonna find is that states that protect fetal life in utero are also gonna be states that are gonna be protecting women. And I think as time goes on, we're gonna see better outcomes, both in health, but also in relationships and families and social, because abortion has hurt women socially so much. Mm -hmm. Um, Prior to Roe, 11% of women had babies outside of childbirth. Currently, 40% do. Mm -hmm. So abortion has allowed men to exit the picture and say, you wanna have a baby, it's all on you. Mm -hmm. And so that's unfortunate. But going back to the medical um, in Texas, I, I work very closely with several crisis pregnancy centers. And one thing that they tell me is that women, when they come in for an ultrasound and the heartbeat is seen, overwhelmingly, these women are relieved because mm. I think it's intuitive, but it's not well-documented. A lot of women are coerced into abortion. Right. So a lot of women who probably desire their child, maybe they're not in the best situation, but they really would like to have their child. And once the state tells them abortion is not an option at this point, many of them are relieved and they do yeah. go on to carry and they go on to make it work and, and, and love their children. But there've been some really bad things that have happened in Texas. One thing is that abortion advocates are working very, very hard to transport women out of state. Like you said, yeah. California welcomes them. New yeah. Mexico welcomes them. Um, fortunately, Oklahoma and Louisiana now have abortion restrictions so they can no longer bring women there, but they were prior to that, bringing women to those states as well. The second thing that is happening is that um, abortion advocates are are trying very, very hard to get chemical abortions in the hands of any woman who has an un, un, unintended pregnancy. Dr. Scott, when you mentioned chemical abortion, help us understand the difference between the surgical and the medical, if you will. Yeah, the very good question. So surgical was the initial mechanism um, at the time of Roe. And in the year 2000, Um, the the Clinton administration brought over with the Association of the Population Council. It was actually a population control measure at that time and to some extent still is um, from France, the medication that was called RU486. Mm -hmm. Here we call it mifepristone. It blocks progesterone, which is the hormone a pregnancy needs to survive. So the mifepristone kills the pregnant, the, the, the fetus, And it is followed about a day later by mesoprostol that causes contractions. Hmm. Mifepristone for 22 years has been regulated by the FDA because it's known to be a drug that can have serious complications and women have died. It's associated with a very unusual type of sepsis on rare occasions. And over time, FDA has, has removed the restrictions that it previously had. 
Using the COVID pandemic as an excuse, this past December, they re removed the in-person restrictions. That means a mm -hmm. woman can get the, the chemical abortion without a doctor ever laying hands on her or even interacting with her in any way. Amazing. There's, there's no way to tell is her gestational age correct because if she's further than 10 weeks, it's very highly likely not to cause all the tissue to pass out. Even less than 10 weeks, about five to 8% of women need surgery <laughs> because they don't have a complete abortion with just the medications alone. Wow. Um, we can't tell if there's an ectopic pregnancy. Abortion advocates say they're concerned about ectopic pregnancies because of the laws which specifically exempt ectopic pregnancies. But in this situation, they don't care if the woman getting the chemical abortion, ordering it over the internet, having it delivered by mail, they don't care if she has an ectopic or not. And women, the, the, the chemical abortions don't work on an ectopic pregnancy. So those can still grow, they can still rupture and they have killed women seeking abortions when they were not diagnosed. Um, RH um, incompatibility, we traditionally have always as the standard of care checked women for their RH status. About 15% of the population um, may need a shot called Rogam to prevent them from making an immune response to a future child. Again, if these women are getting it without the um, uh, assistance of a doctor, no one's ever knowing, do they need this shot? And yeah. I think two, three, five years from now, we're gonna see women having desired babies that are gonna have extremely complicated pregnancies because they didn't get the standard intervention. And finally, women, there's no guarantee that it's the woman who wants the abortion. I mean, you can easily tell that a reluctant boyfriend, a sex trafficker, an incestuous abuser can also order these medications mm. and give them to women who may not desire an abortion to provoke abortion. So wow. there, there's, it's going to be, it's going to be crazy. And it's so, um, it's not caring for women in any way to say you need an abortion so badly. We're going to take away all the safeguards mm. that once That's were in place. That's incredible. Dr. Ingrid Scott is my guest today here on The Bottom Line with the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Uh, check out her article, uh, The Dobbs Decision Does Not Put Women's Lives in Danger, is the title. And uh, the idea that so many women for so many years have been told that abortion is life-saving medical care, even the President of the United States going so far as to say, we have a health crisis right now because there's no Roe versus Wade. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. And you can read more about this in Dr. Ingrid Scott's article, which we've got up at thebottomlineshow.com. Dr. Scott, can I keep you for one more segment? I've got a few more questions I'd like to ask. Sure, okay, great. We're going to continue this conversation on the other side of this break as The Bottom Line continues. Do something productive with your money over the next three years. Invest in Dennis Wilson's real estate-backed 6% CD alternative. You know, with the current administration, you've got three things that you can do. You can stay in the market for the next three years and watch your account go up and down and see what happens. Option two is take your money, put it in the money market, and hold on to it and hope that the Fed raises interest rates. Or number three, you can put your money into our exclusive 6% account. You've got your money safe and sound in a hard asset over the next three years. At the end of three years, you evaluate where you want to be. You want to try the market, you go back. You want to put it into a CD, you go back. Or you just want to reinvest for another three years at 6%. But in the interim, you have made 6% for three years instead of zero. Instead of riding the up and down elevator of the market or leaving your money in the bank earning nothing, you could earn 6% over the next three years guaranteed with Wilson Financial Services. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970 for simply better alternatives. 
Dr. Ingrid Skopp is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. We're having a fascinating conversation about an op-ed that she wrote for The Federalist, and Federalist has such great reporting, and that the op-ed pieces are truly good op-ed pieces, too. Uh, Dr. Skopp is the Senior Fellow and Director of Medical Affairs at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, OBGYN, who practices medicine in the great state of Texas. And uh, we're talking about the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the Dobbs versus Jackson decision, and what it means for America, especially when a lot of people on the pro-abortion side of the equation are kind of losing their stuff over the fact that they think that now women's health is at risk, women's rights are at risk, et cetera, et cetera. And Dr. Uh, Scott, we were talking during the break about the fact that I know a lot of people, even in clergy, who are saying this is a dark day for America, we support your right to choose, we want women to get access to healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. But you write very clearly in this article about what you think of the claim that abortion is quote unquote healthcare. Help us understand why there's not a lot of truth to that statement. Well, I mean, the only time that abortion is needed is in a life-threatening situation. And even then it's extremely rare. And as we talked about earlier, it's exempt from all of the laws. So if right. there truly were in a life-threatening situation, the doctor can intervene, but often it can be done in a different way other than abortion. Mm -hmm. um, this is a statistic that I think is, is crucial to know. Only seven to 14% of obstetricians say that they would perform an abortion if their patient requested them. If this were critical healthcare, wouldn't every obstetrician, the doctor who's in charge of a woman who's pregnant, wouldn't every obstetrician be willing to perform that intervention? Mm -hmm. Of course, if it was necessary. But I think that just belies the fact it's not necessary. Many medical organizations say it's necessary and they use that the the wording but for them it's more of a I would say a social engineering um, mm. motivation yeah but it's not medically necessary mm -hmm. um, uh, along those lines there was a study that supposedly uh, proved that abortion was 14 times safer than childbirth yeah so I remember we, reading we're, that. We're seeing that and Again, as I mentioned earlier, nothing is mandatory about abortion. Re reporting deaths, reporting complications is not mandatory. Many, many of the deaths that occur after abortion occur due to mental health crises. Women, not every woman, but some women experience anxiety, depression, self-harm, suicide, um, substance abuse and overdose and other high risk-taking behaviors. I mean, it's certainly possible that a woman puts herself at risk because of how she's feeling in the wake of an abortion. We don't have any way to pick up any of those deaths. Um, late term abortions, abortions that occur beyond I'd say about 15 to 18 weeks gestation are easily more deadly than term childbirth. St the mm -hmm. CDC statistics tell us that. A woman who has an abortion at 20 weeks has 76 times the likelihood of dying from wow. the abortion than if she had an abortion at eight weeks because they're mm -hmm. very dangerous. And those abortion providers are usually not very well supervised either. Right. So there's, right. there's a lot of concern there. Better studies, because the United States has such co compromised data, better studies in Scandinavian countries where they have meticulous record keeping, single payer healthcare, they know every pregnancy, every death, mm. every medical studies consistently tell us a woman is two to four times as likely to die in the year after an abortion than after childbirth for any reason. Wow. Wow. Um, she's more likely, six times more likely to commit suicide, 10 times more likely to be killed by a domestic partner. Um, she's also more likely to die of 
high risk taking activity accidents. Mm. And um, she's even more likely to die of a cardiovascular event. So it's, you know, when we look at good studies that can pick up all the deaths, we find the complete opposite of what that single study that was performed by outspoken abortion advocates for a clear propaganda purposes. Um, so obviously your listeners should be aware that there's Absolutely. not, uh, there's, that need is not there for women. To Absolutely. Protect. Dr. Ingrid Scoff is with me today here on the bottom line, a senior fellow and director of medical affairs at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. We've got a link for lozierinstitute.org up at the bottom line show.com. Uh, Dr. Scoff, we've got a couple minutes left here and I want to help us to kind of move forward. You've given us a lot to think about in terms of what the typical argument is from the pro-abortion side and how to refute it, I think, lovingly and compassionately, just with facts. Uh, a lot of people are very passionate, but uh, I think it's a Pastor Chuck Swindoll once famously said, he said, there are a lot of people who are very sincere in their beliefs. They're just sincerely wrong. And we have to try to come alongside and help give them good information. While this is a huge win and a huge day, obviously, the Dobbs versus Jackson case overturned Roe versus Wade. So for the pro-life community, we are thrilled. But we know there's a lot more work to do, as you talked about the difference between surgical and medical abortions. There are still women will be getting abortions in this country. What's a good way for us to respond, especially now that we're going to find out that maybe somebody we knew uh, from you know, our, our past or even a good friend is post-abortive and they don't feel good about the fact that you know, yeah. this is no longer a legal procedure in their state. What are some good ways for us in the pro-life community to kind of move forward and to show, hey, we're not the big bad guys that are trying to take away your rights. We just want the best health options for mother and child in the pregnancy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's estimated that one out of four American women have had an abortion. And it's wow. it's it's a sad situation, no matter the reason. Um, these are women in crisis who often just it's a knee jerk response. Um, one, a, a pro-life feminist um, described it as a woman wants an abortion like a wild animal caught in a trap wants to chew off its leg to free mm. itself. I think that's that's how we should look at it. So a woman who's who's had an abortion for whatever reason, we should have compassion on her that her life situation placed her there. There are 2,700 crisis pregnancy centers in our country, and they are doing, they've been doing amazing work, and they're going to continue doing amazing work. Um, Charlotte Lozier has a sister organization called Her Plan, and Her Plan wants to find out what all the resources are in every community around the country so we can plug women in when they present who's, who's offering that service. Um, mm -hmm. We don't think of Dobbs as the end of anything. We think of it as the beginning of being able to have a conversation with the American public about what is best for women. Abortion has been, it's not an easy solution, but it has been the go-to solution, but we've got to work harder. We've got to bring men back into the picture and teach them how to be fathers. We've got yes. to teach... We've got, to, we've got to support women materially, socially, emotionally. I mean, just giving her this, this self-destructive option of destroying the life of her child, even if she doesn't, you know, doesn't know the ramifications of that now, she will later. I've seen this hundreds of times in my career, women who fall into the action, initially their feeling is relief, right? The crisis is over. It's over yeah. But over time, they, as they, if they have additional children or, or maybe don't have children, you know, they, they begin to really have some severe emotional responses to this. And the more women we can keep from having to um, 
engage in that self-destructive option, um, the better we'll do for women and their children and families and our society in general, I think. Well, I think the work that you're doing at the Charlotte Lozier Institute is phenomenal, and I'm grateful to have made the acquaintance, and hopefully we'll have more conversations like this in the future. Dr. Ingrid Skopp has been my guest today here on The Bottom Line. Check out her article in The Federalist, uh, Know the Dobbs Decision Does Not Put Women's Lives in Danger. It's very well thought out and very well presented as well. We've got a link for this book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Dr. Ingrid Skopp, thanks so much for your time and the great work you're doing. Appreciate you being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Thank you so much, Roger. Wow, what a powerful conversation today here on The Bottom Line Show. And if you have not read this article yet, I highly recommend you do. Uh, written by Dr. Ingrid Skopp, my guest today here on The Bottom Line. And uh, it's quite simply, it, it's an article that sets the record straight with regard to um, what abortion laws are still valid in this country and which ones are not. It's an op-ed piece that it's literally called No, the Dobbs Decision Does Not Put Women's Lives in Danger. And it's very thoughtful as well. I mean, for those of us who are in the uh, in the body of Christ and who are passionately pro-life, we rejoiced when Texas passed their heartbeat bill. Many other states have done the same. Um, but then there's always the concern, well, that's for surgical abortions once you hear the heartbeat. What about the so-called chemical abortion, the so-called morning after pill? And I hope it was might have been tough to listen to hear what Dr. Skop, and that's S-K-O-P, by the way, uh, had to say about the chemical abortion and the two-step approach to where uh, basically the mother is ingesting one pill that stops the flow of the the nutrient to the child. So basically starts the process of starving the child in the womb. And then the second pill literally forces the mother to deliver the child. And so, and you're basically delivering a child who's no longer alive. That doesn't fear the left at all, that they have no fear of that whatsoever. But the idea that a woman can't do that now sets all the tongues ablaze. And you know, quite frankly, it's just, it's kind of where we are in this world. But one of the ways that we in the body of Christ can do a better job, I'm always looking for better. It's Paul the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 1, before he gets into the whole diatribe about the love chapter, what does he do? He says, now let me show you a more excellent way or the most excellent way, depending on your translation. We're always looking for a better way to communicate the gospel, to communicate the truth of scripture, always. And this is a perfect example for us in the body of Christ as to what to say to somebody who says, you know what? Woman's got to have an abortion because... Let's talk about some. We'll walk through them on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Real estate broker Brian Edgel is the smart choice when it comes to finding someone to list and sell your home. He will get you the top dollar for your home, ensuring the fair and timely sale of your most important asset. The most expensive part of selling your home is the commission you pay to your broker. With Brian Edgel, you pay only 2.9% total commission. Right now, there are more buyers than sellers on the market, which puts you at an advantage. Get the most money out of your property now while the market is in your favor. Brian negotiates with buyers for you using his experience as a broker, not an agent, to get you the highest price and the most advantageous terms possible. Make the smart choice. Sell your home with real estate broker Brian Edgel for only 2.9% total commission. Call Brian today at 800-969-3992. That's 800-969-3992. Or Go to smartchoicehomeseller.com. 
Brian Edgel, DRE 01391126, and MLS 1599100. My thanks again to Dr. Ingrid Skop from the Charlotte Lozier Institute for joining me today for the past 45 minutes or so here on The Bottom Line. She's Senior Fellow and Director of Medical Affairs, a board-certified OBGYN for nearly 30 years, and probably more importantly, in that 30-year span, she has delivered more than 5,000 babies. She shared some statistics with us today about the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the upholding of the Dobbs versus Jackson case, which also resulted in the overturning of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. That basically means that uh, uh, th- th- what's going to happen is, you know, now you're going to see these vigilante states. You know, California is always running billboards saying, uh, Uh, You know, we're an abortion destination. Uh, The New York Times ran an article the day of the ruling that said Poland shows the risks for women when abortion is banned. You know, and and it's interesting because they want to give you the impression that women will die in pregnancy complications because physicians now have their hands tied from intervening in life threatening situations. If you look at the statistics, according to Dr. Skop, that's just a bald faced lie. The number of women, granted, there are women who face a pregnancy and they'll say, gosh, I don't know if I can afford another child. I don't know if we've got room in our place of dwelling to raise a kid. Kids are so expensive these days. I don't know if we can make it with another one. I think that's a fair and legitimate concern. However, I also don't believe that, that I do not, do not, do not believe that that's a reason to kill the child. You would not sit down at the dinner table with four kids and say, we can't keep one of you. Which one's going to go? And then pull out a shotgun. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? But that's in essence what an abortion for that reason is doing. Dr. Skop sticks by her statistics that indicate that the number of women who have an abortion because the child was conceived in rape and they don't want to have the child around. The child was conceived as a result of incest. They don't want to have the child around. The child has a life-threatening condition or the child's Life might actually threaten the mother's life. And abortion activists will point to maternal mortality rates here in the U.S., a woman who dies in childbirth all the time, and say, see, if we don't have you know, a, a right to abortion, then the, all these women are going to die. Not realizing that in many cases, the mat- maternal mortality rate has nothing to do with whether or not the woman gave birth. A lot of it has to do with the care that she did or didn't receive after she gave birth. Ask women in the African-American community what that's like. But basically, according to Dr. Scott, she said in our interview here, and you can go back and source it at thebottomlineshow.com, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, MyHopeNow, um, RogerMarsh.com, wherever you find it. But basically what she said was, by her count, less than 3% of abortions in the United States are for what she'd call the exemptions, rape, incest, mother's health. 97% of the abortions in the U.S. are elective. And toward that end, 10% of OBGYNs in the U.S. will perform abortions. 10%. This whole, if we don't have it legal, who's going to do the abortions? Well, you know who's doing the abortion is the receptionist who's giving out the pill. The reason states are pushing for what they call telemed abortions. Simply put, they don't have enough doctors and qualified medical personnel to actually perform the abortion. So what's safer and what's riskier? 
Do you want a 17-year-old girl who answers the phone at the abortion clinic to be dispensing two pills, two doses over a couple of days that will kill a human being? That seems like a greater risk to me than doing what the Supreme Court did on June 24th. We want to eliminate deliberate fear-mongering and we want to replace it not only with actual truth and facts, but done so in a loving, caring, and respectful way. And that's the bottom line. 